Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 220 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Lunar Landing, Part 2. I ended the previous episode as the lunar lander and command modules passed behind the moon out of contact with mission control. The next task was to complete the lunar orbit insertion burn. This is Apollo Control at 101 hours, 35 minutes. Uh, We're now less than one minute from the scheduled time for the descent orbit insertion maneuver to be performed by the lunar module on the back side of the moon, where, of course, we don't have uh, radio contact with the spacecraft. Uh, In mission control here, where normally maneuvers of that sort would be monitored on plot boards in front, Uh, we have the board set up, but therefore the powered descent uh, to occur about one-half rev from now uh, over landing site one. Uh, Flight controllers standing around in... Uh, little groups, uh, not much that we can do at this point until reacquiring the spacecraft. We're now 20 minutes, or 20 seconds rather, from ignition on the uh, descent orbit insertion. That will be a 29.8 second burn of the 9,800 pound thrust descent propulsion system. We should be uh, burning at this time. Uh, the result of this maneuver will be to put the spacecraft into an orbit 57.2 by 8.5 nautical miles. Uh, it would remain in that orbit uh, until powered descent. Uh, we should have cutoff by this time. That should have completed the descent orbit insertion maneuver. Uh, we would expect to reacquire the command module first. Command module acquisition time is 102 hours, 14 minutes, uh, 38 seconds. Uh, that will be just about two minutes prior to the time that we will reacquire the lunar module. LEM acquisition time is 102 hours, 16 minutes, 25 seconds. Uh, That is about 37 minutes, 20 seconds from now on the CSM, and about uh, a little less than two minutes longer than that for the LEM. At 101 hours, 37 minutes, this is Apollo Control, Houston. In mission control, Gene Krantz looked down from his console to the first row of the control room, the place the flight controllers called the trench. There was Bob Carlton, who watched the lunar module descent engine like a hawk. 
His call sign on the loop was Control. Jerry Bostic was FIDO, which meant Flight Dynamics Officer. He would monitor the tracking data as the lunar module descended. And Steve Bells, the expert on the lunar module's guidance system, who would be called Guidance. At 26, Bells was no younger than many of his fellow controllers, but he seemed especially boyish. It was his enthusiasm, his slightly unkept looks. It was Bell's job to keep tabs on the lunar module's computer, landing radar, and its trajectory down to the moon. Off to Krantz's right in the second row, a half dozen other men rounded out the team, keeping track of the other systems aboard the lunar module. Each controller plugged into his own backroom specialist funneled data and advice to Krantz in the third row. And directly in front of Krantz, there was astronaut Charlie Duke, the young South Carolinian whose drawl had answered the excited reports from a barnstorming Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan. Charlie Duke knew more about the lunar module than any astronaut who wasn't already on the Apollo crew. That expertise had prompted Neil Armstrong to ask him to serve as Capcom for the landing. A short time ago, Krantz had ordered security to lock the doors to the control room. Krantz wanted to have a private conversation with his controllers. To do this, he switched to a separate communications loop, one that the VIPs and the media could not hear. This is what he said, quote, Okay, all flight controllers, listen up. Today is our day, and the hopes and the dreams of the entire world are with us. This is our time, our place, and we will remember this day and what we do here always. In the next hour, we will do something that has never been done before. We will land an American on the moon. The risks are high. That is the nature of our work. We worked long hours and had some tough times, but we have mastered our work. Now we're going to make this work pay off. You are a heck of a good team, one that I feel privileged to lead. Whatever happens, I will stand behind every call you make. Good luck, and God bless us today. End quote. Telemetry readouts streamed into the control center as Columbia came out from behind the moon. Seconds later, Krantz heard Mike Collins tell Charlie Duke, Listen, babe, everything's going swimmingly. Almost two minutes passed before Eagle reappeared, and almost immediately communications with the lunar module became spotty. The signal would drop out and then return. Krantz sweated out the interruptions, knowing that only minutes from now he would have to give Armstrong and Aldrin a go-ahead for powered descent. And when that time came, his controllers would have to have good data. How much data was a judgment call that only Krantz could make. If everything was going well, they could get by with only a few seconds worth. But even if things were bad, Krantz was willing to stretch the rules because he knew the risk entailed in an abort. Meanwhile, in the command module, Collins' navigational equipment was working really well, which added to his confidence. His last two platform alignments had gone very well, which was always nice, and he had been using his sextant to track a lunar landmark and the lunar module. All this work had been going extremely well, almost effortlessly, 
and the marks made on the lunar module in particular gave Collins confidence about tomorrow's rendezvous. Collins didn't really need to be able to make accurate marks on the lunar module today, but the fact that he could do so boded well. As Eagle approached powered descent, Collins was still hanging in there, peering out through the sextant at a minuscule dot. The lunar module was nearly invisible and looked like any one of a thousand tiny craters, except that it was moving. Finally, as it passed the 100-mile mark, Collins lost sight of the lunar module. Now, a quick word about the lunar module computer. This is how it's supposed to work. Nine minutes prior to descent, the computer starts program 63, called the Landing Maneuver Braking Phase. This will control the start of the burn and the braking phase of the descent. Program 63 will continue the braking for about nine minutes. Three minutes and seven kilometers from the landing site, the computer will run program 64, which pitches the lunar module forward. During this phase, it can indicate to the commander where it intends to land. About 600 meters out, the commander usually selects program 66 to become part of the control loop. Then, the computer rides the throttle as the commander controls attitude, flying like a helicopter to the surface. Inside Eagle, at 50,000 feet above the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin stood side by side, anchored by harnesses to the lunar module floor. Four-day beards darkened their faces. With their bubble helmets, they scanned the instrument panel as the time for powered descent approached. Their mouths were dry from the pure oxygen flowing through their spacesuits. They had already pressurized Eagle's fuel tanks, called up the proper computer program, and checked their trajectory by sighting on the sun with the lunar module's navigational telescope. Back in mission control, there was a sudden burst of telemetry data from the lunar module at the time for the go-no-go no go for power descent decision. Krantz polled his controllers. The controllers made a rapid go assessment, and then mission control lost data again. Since Capcom Duke could not communicate with the lunar module, he relayed the go through Collins in Columbia, who passed the go to the lunar module. Now, in mission control, the intensity of the effort was coming in waves, centering on go, no-go points. Don Putty recommended a switch to the aft antenna, and Duke again relayed the message to Collins. A minor attitude change of the lunar module helped clear up some of the communications, but they still had signal breakups to contend with. This was not going the way it should, and Krantz remembered the mission rule on data needed for landing. It was up to him to decide if there was enough to continue. Krantz was thankful that he swung the rule change to allow making the final call much later in the descent. Communications and data improved momentarily, 
and Mission Control listened to the final checklist items as the crew prepared to start the descent engine. All checklist items were now complete, both on the ground and in the air. Then the mission seemed to smooth out in the 60 seconds prior to starting down. With 40 seconds to go, Armstrong made sure that Aldrin had turned on the movie camera to record the descent. Armstrong set the switch to arm the descent engine. Then seconds after Aldrin pushed the proceed button, the two men spoke at once. Ignition. Just about on time, Armstrong said. The descent engine came to life so gently that Armstrong and Aldrin heard and felt nothing. Only the gauges told Armstrong the engine was firing. The main engine ran at 10% thrust for 26 seconds. This allowed the computer to sense the lunar module's center of mass and aim the engine thrust through it. Then, the computer set the engine to full thrust and the cabin filled with a soundless high-frequency vibration. Once more, communications dropped out. They've lost you, Collins radioed to his crewmates. In mission control, Don Putty asked to switch antennas. The request was relayed by Capcom and Mike Collins in Columbia to Aldrin. When he switched, communications returned. In mission control, while communications were being restored, Steve Bales indicated he had a problem. The landing target was in the center of a 10-mile-long and 3-mile-wide oval area. To hit the landing point, the lunar module descent engine had to operate at a precise velocity 260 miles before the target. The pressure in the tunnel that did not get vented before when undocking changed the planned velocity at the ignition point. Flight, this is guidance. We're out in the radial component of velocity. I'm halfway to my abort limit. I'll watch it, and if it doesn't grow, I think we'll make it, said Bales. His concern was that the navigation system may be in error and that it would affect the trajectory during landing or if an abort was made late in the descent. Krantz was also concerned over the trajectory because Steve Bell's words confirmed Fido's call that the altitude was a bit low. Like a lightning bolt, the data was suddenly restored. The controllers made a quick assessment, and all systems were go. Radar data continued to be shaky and was frequently lost. There was just enough to provide the needed data comparison between the ground indications and those on the Eagle. Steve Bells continued his assessment. The downrange error was not increasing, so he determined that the navigation was good. With data steady for the moment, Mission Control verified proper thrust levels. Aldrin called from the Eagle, saying, I'm seeing some fluctuation in the AC voltage. Krantz's team quickly confirmed that the electrical system was looking good on the ground, and Aldrin concluded that the problem was in the meter on board. Uh, Houston, I'm getting a little fluctuation in the uh, AC uh, voltage now. Roger. Just the uh, meter, maybe, huh? Stand by. It's looking good to us. You're still looking good. It's three, coming up three minutes. As a side note, at this time, T plus 102 hours 35 minutes,
the crew put the rendezvous radar mode switch in the slew position. This action would lead to the program alarms and accompanying excitement during landing. Once the data started from the rendezvous radar, the computer was continuously interrupted with useless and false warnings that the radar's CSM tracking angle was changed. As a result, the computer got overloaded five times during the descent, and later this led Armstrong to decide not to use the computer for retargeting the landing site. There was a post-flight controversy about the possibility that the crew made a mistake here. But the Crew Procedures Division, misunderstanding or using bad information from MIT, trained the crew to do this. Now Neil Armstrong turned his attention to the moon. Eagle was face down, and through his small triangular window, Armstrong could see landmarks he recognized. Each checkpoint was appearing two full seconds ahead of schedule, and since Eagle was going nearly a mile a second, that meant that they would come down about two miles beyond their aim point. Armstrong keyed his mic. Our position checks downrange show us to be a little long, he radioed to Earth. Our position checks downrange show us to be a little long. Roger, copy. Now Eagle's engine throttled down exactly on schedule, and Armstrong realized the computer was not aware of the error. The long break continued, and now, at 46,000 feet above the moon, it was time for Armstrong to turn Eagle over on its back so that its landing radar would point at the moon. When he did, he and Aldrin found themselves looking out at the Earth afloat in the blackness. Communication was also lost when Eagle rotated windows up. In mission control, Krantz told his controllers to make their go-no-go decision based on the last data they think was valid. Krantz polled his controllers again. Everyone was go, especially Steve Bales. His go resounded through the room like a symbol. Roger, you're a go. To con- you go to continue power descent. You're a go to continue power descent. Roger. Altitude 40,000. At 40,000 feet, the landing radar came to life, blurting information on speed and altitude to Eagle's computer. From this data, the computer continually revised its trajectory calculations, and Eagle shuddered with corrective bursts from the maneuvering jets. Armstrong was surprised to hear them fire so often, much more often than in the simulator. There was no smooth ride at this stage. They were lurching their way down to the moon. Aldrin, meanwhile, began running a dialogue with the computer, checking its height calculations against the data from the radar. As expected, the two disagreed by several thousand feet. Aldrin knew the radar echoes were more reliable, and he planned to tell the computer to accept that data. But first, he wanted Mission Control to take a look. To do that, he keyed the command to tell the computer to display the difference of Delta H, as it was called. Delta H is minus 2,900. Roger, we copy. At the Earth, right out our front window. Houston, you're looking at our Delta H. Uh, that's affirmative. 
Then, suddenly, Buzz and Neil heard the high-pitched sound of the master alarm. On the computer display, the P-R-O-G light glowed amber. Program alarm, Armstrong radioed. It was the crispness of his words rather than the tone of his voice that conveyed urgency. Quickly, Aldrin queried the computer for the alarm code, and 1202 flashed on the display. Okay, program alarm. Looking good to us, over. 1202. 1202. Good radar data. Altitude now 33,500 feet. Aldrin did not know just what 1202 meant, and this was not the time to dig out the data book to find out. But it had something to do with the computer being overloaded with too many things to do. He had never seen this kind of alarm in a descent simulation. Now he wished it would just go away. In Mission Control, Gene Krantz's controllers were still studying radar quality prior to incorporating the data into the computers and did not immediately pick up the alarm call. Seconds later, activity at the guidance console came to an abrupt halt as the implications of the alarm sunk in. Bells called, Standby flight! When his backroom support, Jack Garman, brought the alarm to his attention, Charlie Duke repeated, It's a 1202 alarm. It's a 1202 alarm, echoed across the loops for several minutes. Aldrin requested a reading. It was like coming to a fork in the road where you're uncertain which direction to take. Many of the controllers were oblivious to the alarm and were continuing the decision process related to accepting the descent radar. Bales, Duke, and Krantz started working to resolve the program alarm. No one outside the flight control team understood the real significance of the alarm. In the midst of the rapid-fire exchange of communications, Charlie Duke thought out loud on the flight director loop. It's the same one we had in training, he audibly expressed their collective feeling, almost wonderment. These were the same exact alarms that brought mission control to the wrong conclusion, an abort command in the final training run when simulation supervisor won the last round. This time, mission control wouldn't be stampeded. The significance of this was not lost on anyone. The alarm told mission control that the computer was behind in its work. If the alarms continued, the guidance, navigation, and crew display updates would become unreliable. If the alarms were sustained, the computer could grind to a halt, possibly aborting the mission. Each alarm had to be accounted for. They had the capacity to create doubt and distraction, two of a pilot's deadliest enemies. Prompted by Gibson in the back room, Bale said, We are go on that alarm. If it doesn't recur, we are go. Mission Control passed the throttle down times, continued the routine assessments, and a back room controller inadvertently came on the loop saying, This is just like simulation. Krantz smiled and agreed. There's nothing like working out a problem to relieve the tension on a team. Controllers always work better under pressure, and they are doing very well with today's final exam. Give us a reading on the 1202 program alarm. Roger, we got you. We're going at alarm. The radar data smoothly corrected the altitude difference in the computer, and as mission control watched, Aldrin queried the computer for the Delta H. Once more, 
an alarm rang in their headsets. Aldrin called, Same alarm, and it appears to come when we have a 1668 up. 1668 was the lunar module control display of time, landing site range, and altitude. Just another task for the overloaded computer. We're still go, altitude 27,000 feet. Same alarm, and it appears to come up when we have a 1668 up. Roger, copy. Again, a message from Steve Bales came to Buzz and Neil via Charlie Duke. The message was, Mission Control will keep tabs on the Delta H, alleviating some of the computer's workload. Everyone in Mission Control hoped this would fix the problem. Bells knew, above all, they had to prevent a rapid string of those alarms, which would cause the computer to go into an idle mode and abort the landing. With pressure mounting on his team, Krantz spoke to the controllers. Okay, all flight controllers, hang tight. We should be throttling down soon. Krantz mentally thanked the simulation supervisor for that final training in the first week of July. Halfway through the power descent, right on schedule, Eagle's computer throttled the engine back to half its maximum power. Wow. Throttle down. 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 Right. Suddenly, Armstrong and Aldrin felt themselves grow lighter. The long break was over. It was time for Eagle to pitch over from its face-up position and begin the final descent. Armstrong and Aldrin waited intently for the computer to execute the maneuver. Just as planned, 7,500 feet up, Eagle's maneuvering thrusters fired to pitch the craft forward. In Eagle's windows, the flat horizon swung upward into view, and Armstrong looked out at the cratered plains of the Sea of Tranquility, bright in the morning sunlight. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 220 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11, Lunar Landing, Part 2. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I really did. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that as well as download every episode of the podcast, even the ones that no longer fit on the RSS feed. You can do all of that on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute our third most popular level of donation, and that is Mercury. There are 45 Mercury donors so far this year. Mercury donors give $20 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Mercury donors. First of all, I want to give credit to a few of the sources I've been using for this series, and that would be Mike Collins and his book, Carrying the Fire, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight, Andrew Chaikin, A Man on the Moon, Gene Krantz, Failure's Not an Option, and the Apollo 11 Lunar Surface Journal. 
We are about halfway to completing the landing. I apologize for not making it to the landing on this episode. There is about 25 to 30 minutes more information that I need to add and that just wouldn't fit into the final four minutes of the episode. So we're going to hopefully land next week. <laughs> there, there were just so many good details. I didn't want to skip or try to rush through things and take a shortcut. I wanted this to be a really thorough coverage of the landing without any shortcuts. I hope you caught the very interesting side note I mentioned. When one of the crew set the rendezvous radar to slew position, when they did it, did that, it chewed up a significant portion of the computer's processing power, such that whenever Buzz tried to access some information from the computer, it overloaded and produced the 1202 alarm. Why did the crew need to have the rep? rendezvous radar on? Well, according to what I've read, it was part of the procedures Buzz and Neil were trained to do for the landing. I'm not sure why, but that's the reason. Who turned it on, you may say? You know, I heard Buzz say in one of his interviews that he turned it on, but then I've got another source here that says Neil turned it on. But either way, they were both trained to do that, so it really wasn't their mistake. Now, wasn't it cool when Charlie Duke realized that the 1202 alarm was the same alarm they had in training that caused Mission Control to abort the landing? Now, if you missed that, you can find the training episodes. They're 209 through 211, and they go through them, and the Sim supervisor gives them a 1202 alarm and they make the mistake of aborting the landing. And that was their last run, too. So they, they kind of, Mission Control kind of ended on a down note on the training. Well, can you imagine sitting in Mission Control trying to make go, no go decisions with telemetry and communication cutting out so many times? I tell you what, that had to be nerve wracking. It's a wonder. They were able to land at all. They sure had a lot of things going against them. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive five new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Mark M. donated at the Apollo level. Michael G. donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Clinton J. from South Africa donated at the Vostok level. Pepigen Coster pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Carrie M. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned the moon emoji. So that brings our total Patreons to 133. That is 17 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. Our overall donors have reached 229 with a goal of 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. 
I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a dollar donation per month, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated in 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have some of these uh, Orion desk model kits left to give out. The model is of an Orion spacecraft service module and solar arrays. It's made out of cardstock. To assemble, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select the winner, I gave every donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 107. Donor number 107 is Charles Bukowski. Charles, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I still have maybe one more of these models, so we'll have a new drawing for the 2017 donor group next week. Want to encourage everyone to share the podcast? Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so. This is the end of content for this episode, and you are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, I think we're going to get this thing landed. <laughs> I'm, I tried to get it this week, folks, but there was just too much good stuff. But we'll get that thing landed next week, I hope. In podcast news, have another statistic, one we haven't done in a while, and there have been some changes. These are the top 10 states of the United States for downloads in July. Washington State takes the top spot at number 1. California drops to 2. Texas rises to 3. Florida remains in 4th place. The Old North State maintains its position at 5th. New York moves up 1 place to 6th place. Oregon moves up to 7th place. Illinois moves up to 8th, Colorado remains at 9, and Massachusetts moves up to 10. I want to give a shout out to all my listeners in the top 10 states for July. In personal news, Mrs. SRH continues to recover from her injury, and she's gotten to the point where she can move her fingers without too much pain. And she has her stitches removed, so she's doing well. In other news, I want to congratulate SpaceX for another successful launch, and I want to uh, say that I'm really looking forward to the Falcon Heavy launch. I think they have scheduled that before the end of the year. I would really like to see that Falcon Heavy go up. I'm also looking forward to the Eclipse coming soon. We are in the 95% coverage zone here in the foothills, so it should be a pretty good view. Now, if you're going to watch, make sure you get the good glasses, not the cheap knockoffs. You're liable to burn your eyes out if you don't. So you have to be very careful and get the right glasses when looking at the eclipse. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I will try to have episode 221 up by next Thursday. So long for now.